This is the Build Wealth Canada podcast, episode number 94. Welcome to the Build Wealth Canada podcast, where it's all about becoming debt-free, accelerating your wealth, and taking control of your money. Now, here's your host, Cornell Schreiber. Hey, it's Cornell, and welcome to the Build Wealth Canada podcast. Today, I have Brendan Beavis on the show, who runs one of, if not the largest YouTube channel on investing specifically for Canadians. He has over 187,000 subscribers as of the recording of this interview, and he also runs the channel with his dad, who also has decades of financial planning experience here in Canada. Since Brendan and I have each been optimizing our finances and investments for so long, and we each specialize in this, we thought it would be fun to do a collaboration where we each share how we've optimized our investments and finances so that everybody watching on his channel and listening on my podcast can get two different perspectives and ways of doing things. And then you can pick and choose whatever you think is a better fit for you and what you think will have the biggest impact in your finances. Now, before we get into the show, I want to invite you to join me for free at the Canadian Financial Summit this year. It's a fully online educational event, and you can stream all the talks for free. It starts this October 12th, so just a couple days away, and you can get free tickets to stream the talks for free over at buildwealthcanada.ca slash summit. That's buildwealthcanada.ca ca slash summit. We have over 35 speakers this year. There's already over 20,000 Canadians registered for the event covering investing, real estate, financial planning, early retirement, and much more. We've got some really high profile guests again this year, including Brendan Beavis and Benjamin Felix, who each run one of, if not the largest YouTube channels in Canada on investing. We have Rob Carrick from the Globe and Mail. Many of the top writers from Money Sense are presenting too. Some of the largest personal finance bloggers and writers are here as well, like Rob Engin, Mark Seed, Ed Ramplin, Jason Heath, and many, many more. So again, that link for your free tickets, it's buildwealthcanada.ca slash summit. It's from October 12th to the 15th, 2022. So definitely come join us and I hope to see you there. And now let's get into the interview. All right, Brendan, welcome to the Build Wealth Canada podcast. And it's nice to be on your YouTube channel as well. Hi, Cornell. No, this is a pleasure. The pleasure is mine. And thank you for coming on my channel. We got a dual purpose thing here, but it's That's a pleasure right. to be speaking with you. Yeah, this will be fun. I'm excited to do a collaboration kind of thing together. So for everybody watching or, or on Brendan's channel or listening on my podcast, our whole idea behind this interview was to really share how each of us structures and optimizes our finances and our investments. So both of us have been in this space now for a long time, and we've each been researching and optimizing for years at this point. So we thought it would be beneficial to really both of our audience to hear our two approaches. And then that way, anybody listening can see kind of which approach resonates with them the most. And hopefully, it'll save everyone some time from having to kind of figure out some of these things themselves, you know, completely from scratch, or even maybe help prevent you from making some crucial mistakes that may actually be completely avoidable because maybe Brendan or I have already made those mistakes ourselves and you can just learn from them instead, uh, you know, instead of going off and making those mistakes yourself. So with that said, Brendan, if anybody listening here today is hearing about you for the first time, can you tell us about your background and your experience? Absolutely. And I love the way you kind of preface this, Cornell. First of all, let me start by saying, I hope that we are able to display two very different perspectives. That's what I think we'll be able to achieve because I know we've taken two different paths and each and every person listening or watching this video 
comes from a different background. And like you said, hopefully they're able to resonate with one of us, each other, maybe a little bit of both. But my background, for those not familiar, I've been investing since I was about 10 or 11 years old. And I know that kind of cracks people up sometimes. Quite quite young in the big scheme of things. I'm 27 now. So that's pushing two decades of being an investor. Obviously, it started off kind of slow and steady. We'll get into that later. But I went the professional route and became a licensed advisor by the age of 20. So quite young in the big scheme of things. I know a lot of 20-year-olds aren't looking to be in that space. But I do have a father that worked uh, in the field for 25 plus years. He had an investment firm in our little city called Richmond, just south of Vancouver. And basically, my plan was to come and work with him and learn the ropes. And I did that actually for a few years. About four years or so, I worked with him, underneath him, basically as an associate, kind of uh, getting a feel of the industry. And long story short, I decided that that traditional path was not for me. And we can get into that later. Maybe I'm just a millennial. Maybe I'm just young. But I didn't necessarily like the the face-to-face as much as the the power of the internet and the whole idea of working from your laptop and computers. But I did realize that the information I was learning was very, very valuable. So I did decide to start my YouTube channel back in 2017, 2018. And that's grown into one of the larger YouTube channels. In fact, I believe we are the largest Canadian-focused YouTube channel that talks about the stock market. And it's what we do full-time. We employ four people uh, within our little team here. We have our academy where we work with students. And basically, long story short, we're just trying to help spread the information, help spread financial literacy, and share our experiences in doing so. What about you? Maybe for my viewers, uh, by the way, uh, Cornell, for anybody watching this video, I got the chance to meet Cornell last week when I was in Toronto. Absolute blast. We've been talking and working together over the internet for a while now. And the chance, getting the chance to meet you in person was awesome, Cornell. But for those that are not familiar with you, let's, let's hear your story. Sounds good. Yeah, it was it was great seeing you there as well. We have, we've been talking for quite a while now, and we finally actually got to meet face to face. That was really a blast. Brendan's mm-hmm. a lot taller than he appears. <laughs> I, I get was that pretty a lot. blown away. <laughs> I get that a lot. Awesome. So for everybody listening on, on my podcast, you, you're probably already familiar with our story. But so this is, I guess, more so for Brendan, uh, but also for Brendan's audience, but also for anybody that's maybe new to the podcast. We have some older episodes on my show where I kind of went through the sort of the lessons learned, being you know part of the FIRE movement and retiring early and all of that. You know, But for anybody not familiar, just kind of as a little synopsis, our our story was that right after university, my wife and I, we basically moved in right away. So we were, you know, the whole dual income, no kids thing that people mm-hmm. sometimes get you know, jealous of <laughs> when they see yeah. how expensive kids can be. So we Jinx. basically had that right off the bat, you know, right after university. So that really helped, you know, from that perspective. And we both had a good job. So I went to Wilfrid Laurie University. I was in a business co-op program. So, you know, that helped me get a good job right out of university. And that's kind of a little side note for anybody that has kids or maybe is younger, going to university co-op for me was a complete game changer. I mean, it made it I mean, you still have to work hard, mm-hmm. but it made it very easy to get a job and not have to worry about ever having a job. So that, that I would say, was a, a key success factor for sure. But then my wife, she went to University of Waterloo, also a very, very good university. Um, you know, So we had decent, definitely decent jobs. And what we did, that was a real game changer that most people our age did not do that kind of really set us apart. There was a bunch of things we did, right? But one big thing was we basically just lived on one salary right away. So we made our lifestyle, we adjusted our lifestyle in such a way where for almost all the time, we were just living on one salary. Sometimes, you know, something would come up like an expensive car repair, 
you know, whatever, you know, in those cases, you know, we had to kind of dip into the other salary a bit. But for the most part, our savings rate was basically around 50%. And so, again, there was a bunch of other things we did, right, in terms of like cost cutting and things like that. But that sort of was one of the key pillars that helped us become mortgage free when I was just 29 years old. And so that was a really big milestone. It, It got a whole bunch of media kind of coverage. I remember, you know, Money Sense had the magazine at the time. So they sent like a photographer to get a picture of us. We were like featured on the magazine. Like the whole, it was a whole thing. So that was really, really cool. But then when we hit that big milestone, I realized, oh dear, I actually don't know how to invest yet. Like, you know, mortgage is paid off. Awesome. Now we've got all this money coming in every month that we're used to pumping towards our mortgage, but we're not, you know, what, what we got this money's got to go somewhere. Where is it going to go? Well, I can't just blow it. We are, we don't have our RSPs aren't maxed out or TFSA is not maxed out. I got to learn how to actually use this money correctly. And so what I thought would be a good idea to do would be to, well, what if I started a podcast where I interview some of the top experts in Canada and I learn how to actually invest and manage my investments, manage my portfolio, how to make it tax efficient, you know, all those best practices. Mm-hmm. And I, and my kind of logic there was, well, even if, people hate my voice and I mess it up and no one likes the podcast, it would still be a win, just not a, as big of a win, but still a win because I can still take all those lessons learned from all those interviews and apply it to my own portfolio and basically use that knowledge to be able to hopefully you know, retire earlier at the very least, be able to retire and not have to worry about money. And so that's what we did. And the podcast, however, did not fail. It ended up doing quite well. Uh, it's actually now one of the largest financial literacy investor education podcasts in all of Canada. We're just about to hit 1.5 million downloads. So, you know, definitely. Yeah, thanks. So, so, I mean, I'm super happy with it. We've helped out many, many, many Canadians, but I mean, still to this day, the whole idea is, you know, interviewing these experts, these best, learning these best practices, making the information very practical so that you can apply it to your own portfolio and use that to retire early, you know, grow your net worth, just to be more stable when it comes to money as well. Right. And, and so that's really what we did. And then so applying all those kind of different lessons that I learned on the podcast and, and just doing all these interviews and working hard and optimizing things and keeping that savings rate and eventually that savings rate was over 50%, we were able to hit our financial independence number at the age of 32, which made us one of Canada's youngest retirees. So that was another kind of wow. big thing where we were yeah. in, we were in the magazine and, and you know, a picture was taken and in the news and all this kind of stuff. So that was another really, really big kind of milestone. And I did want to say one little caveat is that if I was to do it all over again, I actually would not have rushed to pay off the mortgage. Like knowing what I know now, I would have basically taken that surplus and I would have invested it instead in just total market index investing. Our net worth would have been much higher if I did that, as opposed to just pumping into the mortgage, because interest rates at the time were still fairly low and the market was actually, but when I graduated, it was in 2007. So it was kind of right before the great financial crisis, right? So you're fresh Mm -hmm. out of school and you see your, you know, your director, your manager, you know, freak out because they're losing, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. So that Mm kind of scared me from the market at the time. I didn't really know how all that worked yet and how cycles work and all that. And so because of that, we just kind of said, okay, let's just plow it into the mortgage. At least it'll be safe there. But again, knowing what I know now, I would have done totally different because we missed that upswing again. So that's kind of a little caveat, but I just don't want to make it sound like I'm like, always pay off your mortgage first before you invest. That's definitely not what I'm saying. The way I I see it, Cordell, is like, what you did is not wrong. There may have been a better solution, as you say, looking back, if you crash numbers, but hey, you can't go wrong with paying down the mortgage as you did, right? That's That's, right. um, That's right. Yeah. And for a lot of people, that's what they, that that matters to them. They'd actually prefer that to be debt-free and Whatnot, but maybe we can talk about that later. But 
Sorry, were you, were you going to say sure. something else? For sure. Yeah. No. So then, um, yeah. So we we had fire thirty two. So that was kind of a bit. That was a big thing. And then so we I switched. My wife became a full time stay at home mom. I quit my full time job. Had another fun opportunity. So I just went to semi to be semi retired instead because I wasn't ready to just completely sort of hang up the hat. Uh, you know, yeah. go from two full time incomes to zero incomes. I was like, ah, oh, it's making me a bit nervous. Even though all the models say that that's enough money, I'd still a bit nervous. So I ended up doing basically semi retirement, whereas my wife was fully retired. So did that for a bit. Then eventually we were like, hey, this semi-retirement thing's pretty cool, but we can actually be fully retired. So I actually switched to full retirement, did that for six months, felt very unfulfilled if you're in your 30s mm. and don't have like a... Just, I can imagine. If you, yeah. If you're, it's really fun for the first, like I'd say five months in my case, but yeah. at six, but around there, it was like, okay, I need some passion projects, that kind of a thing. And so that's when I had the opportunity to take over the Canadian Financial Summit, which is happening October 12th to 15th. Uh, 2022 mm-hmm. shameless plug uh, so you can get your free tickets i'll, I'll be there absolutely awesome. nope. <laughs> yeah brennan's gonna be there we're doing a presentation for those on our, our channel mark and i are going to be presenting there uh, at the financial summit We'd love for you guys to check that out so yeah we'll link that somewhere around here eh? for sure yeah you'll have it under your video i'll have it in my show notes as well and all of that so yeah for sure we'll be we'll be linking out to all of that but yeah so then i basically joined that took that over so now i'm i went from full-time working to semi-retirement to fully retirement to back to semi-retirement so if we, i've kind of gone through that whole sort of gambit and actually live the fire movement as opposed to just talking about it in theory. We've actually done the whole yeah. thing. And so I think that kind of gives me some unique insights in terms of, hey, I clearly made some mistakes, like with the whole paying down the mortgage thing, for example. Mm-hmm. So some things we did really well, some things were not quite as optimal. And so I hope that by sharing you our kind of story and where we messed up versus where we did good, hopefully that is like a shortcut for everybody watching and listening where they don't have to kind of make the same mistakes that we did, but the things that did work well for us, they can replicate that hopefully. And then, you know, they can get there quicker as well. So, and yeah, that's kind of my long-ish bio. So yeah, hopefully that's helpful. I'm sure it is. Yeah, that's awesome, Cornell. And that's one of the things which I've mentioned to you before is what I find is so valuable is like you said, you've been through it. You're speaking from a place of personal experience and willing to share the fact that you've been through it. You know, for someone like myself, who's in their twenties, and again, you retired, you know, not long, you know, not far from where I am today, which is so impressive. But a lot of the times if I'm talking about a topic such as retirement or whatnot, it's, it's more of the education, the knowledge, the wisdom, but not so much speaking from experience. And that's where I think it's so valuable that you're willing to go out and share the stuff with the world, with the, the country. And that's one of the key reasons why I wanted to have you on my channel here is because of exactly that. So just to be clear, you would consider yourself semi retired right now. Is that fair to say? I would say semi-retired. Yeah, we could be fully like like we are five. Uh, like we have hit that, yes. that retirement number. But I have the podcast. I now run the King Financial Summit, so I can't really say, "Oh, I'm fully retired," because well, I have these gotcha. two like businesses now, right? Yeah. So I would say semi-retired would be the right term to use at this point. Cool. And before we, before we get into some of the things that I think we're going to break down a few different ways we manage our money, a few ways we approach things. I, I did have just for my audience. When you say fire, when you say fire, the movement, you know, fire movement. Maybe take a, just a brief moment and elaborate on that. It's not something we talk about as much on our on our medium, but financial independent retire early. Is that essentially what you bought into? I know there's fat fire, lean fire, all of these. Yeah, the kind of the path that we took was sort of that tr- the traditional fire route. So for anybody that traditional has fire. ever Googled this, they've probably ran across Mr. Money Mustache, right? He's kind of the mm-hmm. one of the pioneers in the space, right? So I remember reading that, his blog when I was younger, and it blew my mind. Like, what, you can actually retire? when you're 
young. You don't have to wait till you're 60. It, it just it blew my mind. And so I spend a lot of effort yeah. <laughs> figuring out how to actually do that. You know, and, and I'm happy to say that we pulled it off. Yeah. So the whole idea really is that you you try to you save a lot of money up front. You you work really hard, try to make as much as you can in the beginning so that you can basically retire early, never have to work again, and you can just live off your investments. So financial independence, that would be the definition I would use as you just, you're able to live off your investments without having to actually go back and get another job. It doesn't mean you never work again. And so that's kind of because you can, if you want, but you don't have to. And it kind of the big caveat I did want to say about the whole fire movement is because when, when you read his stuff and a lot of sort of the traditional fire movement things, the whole idea is once you hit that magic number, once you know the four uh, percent kind of rule that he talks about, things like that, you never yep, work again. Yep. But, the, but the reality is that in practice, you'd still want to do something. <laughs> you, you know, you're not gonna just gonna watch uh, Netflix all day or play video games all day. It tends up to be very unfulfilling, mm-hmm. unsatisfying. It's fun for a bit, like a vacation, but if you're doing that all day every day, it doesn't work very well, right? And so, um, so I find we have to be really be very careful with that word because, you know, like, so I'm 38 right now. We had our fine number, fine number when I was 32. So we've, you've been in this kind of thing, like actually living it for quite a while now. And what I've noticed just in my own life and also interviewing other people that hit FI is that they all actually end up going to what someone could consider work. Like literally everyone that I've talked to still ends up doing something mm-hmm. that someone that's like looking at them saying, you can't call yourself retired. You're you're still working. You're still doing yeah, whatever that that's is. That's what right? a lot of people would, a lot yeah, of people right? would say that, yeah. And, and you'll know, and it's not like, oh, this happens sometimes. Like literally everyone that I've researched about this has comes back to doing this. And the whole thing is, and this has happened to me as well. And the whole idea is, again, it's very unfulfilling to just be on the permanent vacation for the rest of your life when you're in your 30s. It's just, it doesn't check those boxes like intellectual stimulation, creative stimulation, you know, uh, working on something that you enjoy, giving back to society, right? Like altruism, that whole thing. You know, you don't get those things. You don't feel like you're part of this community if you're just sitting on your behind watching Netflix, right? And so I think we have this sort of human psychological innate need to check those other boxes just for like happiness, self-satisfaction, even just depression avoidance, right? And so that's why everyone kind of moves. But I would say the key difference there is that it's no longer, oh, I need money to pay for the groceries. And so I'm just going to suck it up, even though I hate this job or I'm really not passionate about it, but I need the money. So I just got to suck it up and do it. You, ne- you never have to do that again. Instead, it's the, co- the narrative is more, the conversation is more, what do I love doing? What well, What is something that I would yeah. do for fun anyway? Like I love mountain biking, you know, so if I could find a way to, oh, maybe I'm gonna, I take people on mountain biking trips instead as well, right? Mm-hmm. Then mm-hmm. like to me, that doesn't feel like work because I would do that for free. It just, it would be fun for me anyway, Absolutely. but there's a way to monetize it. And so that's been a really common thing that I've seen with people in the fire movement is they just, they have this whole thing of self-discovery. They find out what they love and then they start doing that, but then they're doing it and they're like, wait a minute, People want to pay me to like help them with this. And so they're like, all right, well, fine. You, you can pay me. I'll help you. I would be doing this regardless. So sure, I'll, I'll take the money, right? And then that actually makes you a lot more stable financially because now you actually have some income coming in, and you're, but you're not technically working, but you would be doing that anyway, right? So it's a very, yeah, so I kind of want to point that out because yeah. it's a very easy trap to fall into. And then you're like, you know, thinking you're never going to work again, but you really, you realistically are. It's just the work's going to be on your terms and it's going to be your dream job as opposed to a job you hate or a job that you're just kind of lukewarm. Key about. difference there. Yeah, Key yeah. difference. And now a quick message from one of our sponsors. 
No one has a business like yours with all its strengths and challenges. This Small Business Month, you need a hiring partner that adapts to your needs. You need Indeed. With Indeed, you don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it with just Indeed. You can also find top talent fast with Indeed's suite of powerful hiring tools like Indeed Instant Match, Assessments, and Virtual Interviews. One thing that I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place easy because it does the hard work for you. Sponsor job and boom, Instant Match shows you candidates whose resumes on Indeed fit your description immediately after you post. With Instant Match, you can start hiring fast. And according to Talent Nest 2019, Indeed delivers eight times more hires in Canada than all other job sites combined. So start hiring now with a $100 sponsored job credit to sponsor your job post at Indeed dot com slash build wealth. The offer is good for a limited time. Again, you can claim your $100 credit now at indeed.com slash build wealth. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. And now back to the show. You mentioned when you were kind of in the swing of your pursuit of fire or or financial independence, you were saving upwards of 50% of your income, right? Which is an amazing feat. That's tough for a lot of people to do. I assume you were very meticulous with how you budgeted your cash flows, how you manage that. I've always been the type that never really uses much of a budget. You know, you have all these softwares and apps and whatnot. I'd love to hear from your end. What was that techniques? Like what did you use to manage your cash flow and to kind of like, you know what I'm trying to say is to when you got like, you must've been, you know, on top of that type of stuff. What what did you personally do? What was your experience like there? Yeah. Yeah. Very much. So I, I track that very heavily. Yeah. <laughs> and I tried any software I could get my hands on and all the, there's all these different techniques like for budgets and tracking expenses and all that. Yeah, so I tried pretty much any one that I could get my hands on. Did you use the free ones or the ones that you paid for? You tried both? Cuz there are definitely a lot of free trials and then there's the ones, you know, Mint or Union Budget where you sometimes you do need to upgrade. Uh, yeah. What, yeah, what have you used? Yeah, so, so I've tried a whole bunch of it. And again, we started this like many, many, you know, like over uh, like over True. a decade ago at this point. So I'll, I guess I'll speak to what I'm, I'm using now because we still mm. we still use something right now. Yeah, so these days I basically just use Mint, which probably a lot of people have already heard of. So I, I am happy with Mint and how it works. I haven't found anything better that works for Canadians specifically. I have tried some other services that are sort of paid. However, mm-hmm. I did have some issues with them automatically downloading my transactions from the different, like from the, from the credit card, from the bank, yeah. that, that kind of yeah. a thing. And to me, that was a deal breaker because I don't want to be manually entering transactions at all. That just sounds like hell to me. So yeah. I really, so what I don't mind doing and what we actually do, my wife and I every week is we will sit down on a Saturday. We have the transactions that get automatically downloaded in Mint. We'll go through them. Mint will automatically categorize them. And then I go through them and I look for anything that looks off, like we're, okay, this, this seems a bit higher than I think it should be. This month, I don't yeah. know what what transaction this is. And it's actually like a significant amount. So is this something my wife, is it, was this on my wife's card? Something like that. And so we basically have this conversation once a week where we're going over our expenses and I know exactly what we're spending. And it's not, it's not a labor, like time consuming thing. I mean, like the whole thing might take like 10 minutes to do. Just to clarify. So you 
you know, you've been doing this for a decade. Do you guys still do these regular meetings or it's something that now with time you haven't felt the need to do or it's just part of your routine at this point? It's part of my routine. So we, we still do it to this day. Yeah. Um, wow. I, I think it's you. critical because even like, even though we're fine and everything is sort of is good on that front. Okay. I like to think of it as having your own business, right? Even if your business is doing well, Mm-hmm. That, does that mean you're going to all of a sudden stop tracking your business expenses and stop tracking That's your right. business income? Because you're like, oh, well, it's going fine. I got made some sales. So, let, you know, yep. of course not, right? You're still going to manage all that because it doesn't take much for something to happen. And all of a sudden now you're, you know, your business is bleeding money and now you, know, you go out of business. So same thing with your, with your finances, right? Is you still want to look at things. So I do want to, like, even for things like fraud prevention, right? Like, oh, did someone get my credit card number and now they're doing transactions yeah. and the credit card company didn't catch that, right? Well, if I'm reviewing our transactions once a week, taking 10 minutes, not not a lot of time, right? To see, okay, honey, do you remember these transactions? Okay, or, or if, if you don't, then this must have been mine. You know, you, you just go over it and you check. So even just for fraud purposes, but also things like you're in this together, you're in this relationship together with your partner. You know, if you see something start to creep up, like your partner develops some expensive habit all of a sudden. A drink, yeah, a drinking <laughs> habit or this or that. You, yeah, that'll reflect. You want to know that, right? And you also want to be transparent with them about like, hey, here's kind of where the money went, just so you know, just so that you're in the loop, right? I never see myself not doing that anymore because it takes 10 minutes I would say a week to do. It, it can help you with things like preventing things like fraud, which can then hurt credit score. So it's like a preventive thing that could cause potential problems for you as well. And yeah, like I like to view your personal money. It is kind of, it is like a business, right? You should know how much money you have coming in. You should know where your money is going so that you can manage it properly. You don't have to spend hours every week doing it, but you need to know so that if something spikes all of a sudden, like, hey, why is our water bill like twice as high as it normally is this month? Okay, well, if you're reviewing every week, you'll notice something like that. And then you can be like, oh, well, we probably have a leak in our toilet or, or something. You know what I mean? And so it For raises sure. these flags, you know, as opposed to just like, oh, I'm sure things are fine. We're not bankrupt <laughs> yeah. yet. So we're okay. You know what I mean? <laughs> I do know what you mean. And I'll say, unfortunately, you know, this is where you, you and I differ. Uh, again, I, I could kind of tell that you were a very meticulous person. <laughs> and uh, as you get to know me more, more and more, Cordell, I'm kind of the polar opposite of that. I try to be as meticulous where I have to be, but I also really like to kind of go with the flow and kind of a bit loose sometimes. And just to share with you what I've done for my budgeting, I as well have tried all these various softwares. Mint, you need a budget. Typically, I try the free versions that are available rather than paying for one. But what I've always used for the past number of years is just an Excel spreadsheet. Like I found that the most basic of Excel spreadsheets is as ugly as it gets. Um, no real formatting, just getting the numbers on paper or on the computer, actually. That has always worked best for me. And rather than being so you know, specific in the various categories and whatnot, I've always found that that was tough for me just based on the way I live. And does this go here? Do I categorize this as this? So many random things that I, I really struggle to pinpoint. I budget in a very different way where I just have my fixed costs and then my discretionary costs. And it, again, everyone would have variance in what they consider fixed and what's discretionary. But that's how I've operated like since I was in my late teens. When I moved out on my own, I was you know renting on my own, I think at about 19, 20 years old. And I said, well, my rent, I have to pay, right? My car, I have to pay. Gas, I have to pay. Insurance, I have to pay. But these other things like going out or going to play this or that, um, going for some entertainment, those were all my discretionary costs. And I essentially keep it into two very simple bu- buckets. I should say, actually, there's a third bucket. The way I like to look at it is there's savings and investing, which is its own bucket. And that gets put away regardless. And then you have your fixed expenses and then the non-fixed expenses. And 
what's always worked for me is if I know my fixed, ex- if I know my income is X, 3000 a month, 5000 a month, here's my investments slash fixed stuff, like my rent or mortgage. Everything else is what I have to work with. And it's a very different strategy than, you know, checking your budget every week with your spouse, which I can't argue with. Like, I think that's phenomenal. And I wish I was able to do that. But in all honesty, now that I've been budgeting for, uh, like I said, at least a number of years, I actually don't check mine all too frequently. Like the times where I will go check them, Cornell, is when I know there's a big change. Like, for example, my mortgage payments are going up. And that's a time where I would go and revisit my budget. But those don't happen as frequently as weekly. Absolutely not. It would be, I would say, maybe every couple of months now. But I do have a budget. It's on my computer. We actually share it with our academy students. Not my crappy version, but we have a nicer version that the students use. And uh, maybe I can take a page out of your book because everything you said there about being able to track and it leading to maybe some some other areas like fraud or just bonding when it comes to financial education with your family. Those are all very, very valid. But it is just fascinating how we do have two different approaches. That's why I wanted to speak with you today. And I'm happy to be on your podcast to hopefully share these differences in ways of managing money, right? No, that's great. You know, it's funny. Before we started recording, I was thinking, you know, it'd be funny if we all pretty much gave the same answers. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> <Then they>, oh. <laughs> the whole idea was, here's two people that have been optimizing this for a long time. Yeah. There's a chance they have different approaches just because there's so many different ways to do these things. Yeah. And I like, thought, what would be funny if like, hey, Cordell, what did you do? Oh, I do the same thing you do. Okay. Next, next topic. Oh yeah, I do the nice same thing you do. <laughs> Absolutely not. Well, <laughs> there's so many ways out there and um, yeah. Yeah, that'd be so, pretty. That'd be that'd be pretty fun if we were right in line. <laughs> It'd be a very short interview. It'd be like you know, fifteen minutes to get through everything. <laughs> Absolutely. So, do you add things up manually onto that spreadsheet? Like you just take the top line items, kind of, and throw it in there. I do. So, literally, I'll go through my bank, like my credit card statements, and mm-hmm. I'll literally pull up, let's say, the month or the past three months, and I will go through and either export that data, like you know, a CVS or whatever the export button is, or sometimes literally just copy and paste it, and it is a lot more manual. Like you said, it's like like hell. <laughs> I believe you. <laughs> I'm exaggerating, but yeah, it's not pleasurable. <laughs> That's the funny thing, though. As as not pleasurable as it is, for some reason, I kind of enjoy doing it. Like I kind of enjoy going through the process. And again, I don't do it as often, but I get settled down, allocate thirty minutes to an hour, and just and just do it. So it it I know what you mean when you say it's it can be frustrating, but at the same time, I also um I do do it manually. That's right. But you're doing it like manually, but at a at a high level. It's not like you're putting in transaction by transaction like oh on september this i spend this much at walmart on the you know you're just you're doing top line type things right i've done both um and sometimes it gets a little more a little more um extreme but yeah for the most part top line stuff so i really like how you have the two categories of discretionary versus non-discretionary i mm-hmm. with within mint and, and other softwares i've used in the past as well because you can tag things or, or categorize things yeah. different ways as well so i would always like to do that I enjoy doing that as well, where I would have the discretionary mm-hmm. versus non-discretionary, because that's kind of what you really want to know at the end of the day, right? Is okay if if times got tough, like one of us lost our jobs or whatever the you know whatever is your situation, you want to know well how much could we cut back relatively easily because it's discretionary versus like the real serious problems of we might not have enough for groceries, right? Like that's kind of- Or a mortgage right now. Or Right now, rent and mortgage, absolutely. Rates are going up and people are, you know, really feeling strapped. Exactly. Really feeling strapped. How are we going to pay this? Where is this going to come out of? It has to come out of somewhere if you have a fixed income. And we are seeing that like live today. It's it's happening all over the place. So you're you're exactly right. It's very good to know. Very important to know for sure. So, So I love how you have those two categories. The challenge that I ran into 
is some of them are a bit of some categories are a bit of both. So to give you like an example, such as, food, such as food and groceries. Yeah, like groceries, even even fuel for the car, right? Like, oh well, did you have to drive there? <laughs> that, you know I mean? Let me speak. Let, let me speak on that one because you're exactly right. Those yeah. to me are the really clear two categories that are always in that middle ground. Yeah, and I have never had success saying, you know, I'm going to allocate $150 a week for groceries or $300 per month for groceries. The way that I eat food. It's I could not eat the same thing over and over again, meal prep and and just get the same thing over and over again for weeks or months on end. So it is constantly varying. And I've never, ever had success in putting a fixed number on groceries. So that's why for me, it's just it is difficult to category to be completely honest, to be completely honest with you. But I do break up the groceries and then like eating out. So that's one thing a lot of people will just call it food. But groceries, for example, like I will have a rough allocation of $300 a month or $400 a month. Right now, groceries are like I'm spending more than that for me and my family with the price of meats and everything. But groceries, I would lean more towards being in that fixed non-discretionary component. But the eating out part of food, like going to the restaurant with your friends or Uber Eats, those are absolutely part of the discretionary funds. And again, it, it is a tricky one, definitely to this day, hard to kind of categorize that for sure. Yeah. Same would be said with, with gas. But for example, with gas, like let's say I allocate $200 a month on gas. Again, right now it feels like it's more, but like $200 would be my baseline, my rough, you know, target that I aim for throughout the month. And if, for example, I have a lot more discretionary funds for the month, like I'm not spending as much on going out or not spending this, well, hey, I know I can kind of go over a little bit, definitely a little more looser there, but still definitely having those, those rough targets, like an average that I would spend fixed on a given month. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. One another approach I, I just thought of right now that I think might work well is for something like groceries, because yes, you could cut those back if you need it to. You can eat beans and rice, right? Like exactly, exactly. So I guess one approach could be if you really wanted to figure out that discretion or like ballpark discretionary versus fixed, you could always say, well, how much realistically could I cut my grocery budget by if things got really tough financially? Right, like is you kind of have a baseline. Is it you have 15%? a worst case scenario? Yeah, yeah. Sorry to right? cut you off. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's okay. Yeah. So I, I think that might be another way, you know, to, to sort of do it. It's not going to be exact, but I guess mm-hmm. if you wanted a more accurate number of discretion versus non-discretionary, because I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, you're not, you're probably not going to cut your groceries by fifty percent, but I don't know, mm-hmm. maybe like twenty percent sounds like you could do if you really got into hard mm-hmm. times, and that might give you some idea. But there's probably other areas you could cut anyway. You know, a key thing that I would mention too here, Carnell, very important is throughout my entire life, I've never been in a position where I've gone, I've been so strapped with my fixed expenses. I think that's actually key. It's one of the best things you can teach somebody when they're just getting onto the real world. Like, for example, buying a home that you can't afford. Like, yeah, you can afford it, but can you really afford yeah. it? Or even even renting a home that's taking up too much of your budget. That's it, It's becoming trickier and trickier, like where you live or where I live here in Vancouver, Toronto, wherever the case is, your home costs just eat up so much of your monthly income. But on that topic, like I've never, even when I moved out at 19 or 20, like, yes, my rent took a big portion of my income, but it was never so much that I felt the need. Like I didn't want to put myself in a position where I had to do this worst case scenario, you know, eat beans and rice. I always knew that the home that I'm living in, like I lived with three roommates when I first moved out, my rent was manageable. My car payment was, well, we'll talk about cars later, but my car was just an absolute beater, like a, a junk car that I basically just paid gas and insurance for. So the food and entertainment has always been an area of, of slight flexibility because I didn't put myself 
with my back against the wall, you know, in a tricky situation that comes from, like I said, not going beyond your means, really, mm-hmm. as I'm sure you know very well. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, there's there's these other bigger fish that you can fry, such as did you just buy a very expensive car with borrowed money that now exactly. that's taking a huge chunk? Are you living in a house that's beyond like way more than you really should have? And so much of your money is going to interest. Like those, like you said, those are kind of these giant things that really move the needle. That if you get, I would say, the car and the housing piece right, that yes. the chances of you getting into this trouble where I can't eat chicken this week because times are tough, that's very unlikely if you've got those other parts nailed down, right? That's exactly what I, I was like trying that. to get across. No, yeah. thanks. You, you summarized it there perfectly. Mm-hmm. That's a really good point. Yeah. Yeah. It's like your baseline costs. You make sure those are never so high that you have to get into that situation where you have to micromanage your groceries to that point. Yeah, that's excellent. I like that. Awesome. Totally. Hey there, just a really quick intermission to ask if you could please leave a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts if you're enjoying this episode and are using one of those as your podcast player. It really helps other Canadians discover the show and it makes it much easier for me to get top-notch guests on the show for you. So if you're a Spotify user, you just have to select the show in Spotify and scroll all the way to the top and there you'll see a button where you can give the show a star rating. It literally takes seconds and it helps an absolute ton. So thank you so much for supporting the show in that way. And now back to the show. This is great. We actually do have some unique answers. Good, good. (laughs) My concern was not valid. (laughs) Hey, we're very different people. Maybe we'll move on to the next topic of discussion here. Let's do Uh, it. If you're good with that. Basically, my stock, my channel is all about the stock market and primarily about investing, right? That's literally what we build our, our channel and our presence around. And the audience is well familiar with how I invest in, in regards to, you know, what type of assets I own, what type of strategy do I have? Is it global? Is it Canadian? Um, all of that stocks, ETFs. Maybe share what you've done with your story. Uh, you, you said you picked up investing after paying off your mortgage, becoming essentially debt free there on the mortgage side. What have you landed on and what has been working for you? Yeah. So what I've been doing pretty much since day one is just pure total market index investing. I I consider myself like a purist total market index investor. And by that, I mean, I don't have that thing. Some people will take like 10% of their portfolio and they'll use that to speculate in cryptocurrency or stocks and like, and you know, to to each his own. And if, you know, if if that works for you and that's a good fit and you're still fine financially, like I'm, I'm not, you know, here to you know, to criticize or anything like that. For me personally, my approach that's worked for me is just total market index investing, no market timing, nothing like that, just buying the index. And instead, I focus my time on like doing tax optimizations, right? Making sure my investments are in the right accounts, making sure I have the lowest fee investments, making sure that my wife and I are in the lowest tax bracket with the way that, you know, where we pull our income and semi-retirement, things like that. So that piece alone that's what takes up my my sort of focus and energy when it comes to optimizing. Uh, and Optimize, the reason yeah. is just a better fit for me personally. And I and I like it as well because if I am able to optimize a, a, some tax thing, that's pretty much a guaranteed return, right? That now compounds Absolutely. because, like, okay, you figured out the strategy, you optimize this one thing, that's it. That, that That's not, oh, maybe I was wrong. And, no, you're right because you figured this out and now you've optimized it, right? It, it's very right. kind of black or white in that way. Whereas when it comes to things like stock picking or you know cryptocurrency speculation, things like that, yeah, maybe you'll make the right call and you'll make some money, but maybe you 
make the wrong call and you lose a whole bunch of money. And now you spend all this time into something that, en- that ends up losing. So me personally, you know, I like to go for the sure thing. Well, I shouldn't say sure thing because we're talking about investments, but I like to go. But, Fair enough. You know, I, get where, I get where you're coming but from. But with Total Market Index Investing, it's not like all the companies in the world you know, are going to all of a sudden go bankrupt, right? And you're going to lose all your money, right? So uh, with Total Market Index Investing, I would say that's kind of as sort of reliable, predictable, you know, kind mm-hmm. of as it goes in terms of mm-hmm. I know like the, the chances of it doing well long term mm-hmm. are very, mm-hmm. very, very high, higher than any other strategy I can think of. Uh, and so really that's agree. basically the one that I subscribe to. And that I've pretty much automated at this point as much as it can be automated. Uh, and we can talk about that more too, if, if you guys you know, want to know the details of how I did that. And so mm-hmm. it takes very little time to actually do that kind of piece. And instead, mm-hmm. I can focus on optimizing things from a taxation perspective. Yeah, so that's what I do. Should I go into more detail or is that kind of... Well, maybe we'll ask one more question on that because yeah, like you say, index investing, I assume ETFs, like do you have a favorite provider? Is there one provider that you work with? Again, if it's too personal, don't like feel free to, you know, not answer, but is yeah. there, do you have a favorite provider? Is it BMO, Vanguard, iShares? Um, have you found that this strategy has changed over the years or like right when you started, you've always been an ETF investor? Did you experiment with stocks when you started off or you've always kind of bought into this has always resonated with you and it's been working so far so good? I've pretty much always done the total market nice. index investment. Yeah. Now, before, when we were still paying off our mortgage, you we were paying into our, you know, the pensions you have at work, yeah. the defined contribution uh, pension plan, you know, that my, my wife had, right? So the, there, you know, we were in some kind of the funds that they kind of force you, you know, that they have there's yeah. a selection, Group right? Plans, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So like not including that, because that's kind of different because there's, you know, you, you can't just invest in whatever you want in those scenarios. But, you know, once I actually was like, okay, mortgage is paid off or going full out on investing and it's all within my control, that's basically been total market index investing from day one. That that's gotcha. that's what it was. In terms of providers, yeah. So the big three that I would feel comfortable investing in are basically, you know, BMO, Vanguard, and iShares. Uh, I mean, those nice. are the the, the behemoths yeah. in the space. Any one of their total market index ETFs, I would personally feel comfortable holding. Um, I mean, just the reputation is good. Their fees are very, I mean, they're, they're all watching each other, right? So the fees are very, very comparable. They have, they have to be. Yeah. 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 Vanguard is a little bit higher on some of them. So I've sort of, so just be careful because Vanguard's got to, you know, investors love it. They get, because a lot of people read US stuff, even though we're here Mm -hmm. in Canada and Vanguard's Mm -hmm. like all the rage in the US. At least that's the Mm -hmm. impression I get. Like they have very good, people love, love their Vanguard. But then when you look at the MER, like, like BMO and iShares uh, do have lower fees on some other ETFs. So you, you do want to, like, don't just blindly go Vanguard. But even again, even though there's nothing wrong with Vanguard, I've invested, I have a bunch of Vanguard ETFs myself. Yeah. So those are kind of the three that, that I like in terms of what I invest in myself. So the asset allocation has changed over time. So I, I won't kind of take you through the whole history. It'll be like a 20 minute answer, but yeah. I'll tell you what I'm doing right now. So basically when I started the asset allocation, ETFs didn't really exist. And so I basically read all these different books and studies and all these things to find out, well, how much should I have in Canada versus US versus emerging markets versus international developed versus bonds? That was a whole right. que- like big question that I would mm-hmm. interview people on the podcast and try to figure out kind of what's a good one, that kind of a thing, right? Do I go 40% US? Do I go 50% US? You know, that whole thing that whole puzzle, right? But then mm. asset allocation ETFs came out. And then, I mean, these companies, like, you know, the BMOs, the Vanguards, the iShares, they have these asset allocation ETFs. They've already figured this out, what a good allocation yeah. is between Canada, US, international. For and sure. so I actually, so these days, I just basically model that. So what I'll do, for example, is I'll take something like XEQT, which is the all equity iShares 
asset allocation yeah. ETF, but then I'll, I won't buy that asset allocation ETF. I'll buy the underlying ones. And then the reason that I do that is because then I can take, because different ETFs are more tax optimal in different accounts. So like taxable yeah. accounts versus RSP versus TFSA, uh, even like corporate cool. investing accounts, right? So different yeah. ones fit better in different slots, depending on what that ETF holds. That's kind of getting more advanced. So if you're just I love getting- I that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah. So, so if you're just getting started, you don't have to go down that rabbit hole, especially if your portfolio is like relatively small because the gains you'll get by taking this extra level of optimization, it's very, mm-hmm. it's like negligible if your portfolio isn't very large. But if your portfolio is like in the hundreds of thousands of dollars kind of thing, then it's mm-hmm. like, okay, at least consider maybe optimizing it in that way. Yeah. So that's what I do. So that's how I get my asset allocation is I basically these days I just model XCQT, but I buy the underlying ETFs within it. So these days what I'll do is I'll buy XIC for Canada, XEC, XEF for the international, XUU Mm -hmm. for the US. And then with the US, it's a bit of a, Again, a bit more of an advanced thing. So I'll I'll have it in my RSP, a lot of it. And there I'll yeah. buy VTI, which is the Vanguard product using Norbert's Gambit. So again, this is getting more advanced now yep. Uh, yep. just to not have to pay the withholding taxes. So the US is kind of a more complicated animal because of the tax treaties between Canada and the US. I guess that could be like a whole episode all on its own. That could be a whole uh, episode, yep. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so, but I'm just being transparent. Like, so, so that's what I do. But for like US equities that are not in my RRSP, I pretty much, I'll do XUU. Uh, I've been going with that one. And then these days, and then for my RESP, so for my kids' RESP, I just do ZEQT these days, which is the BMO Asset Allocation ETF, um, which is the all equity one because my kids growth, are relatively yeah, young. Growth, uh, yeah. So that, And then the reason I do an asset allocation ETF for that Whereas for our retirement accounts, I you know I buy the individual ones is because with an RESP you don't get that you don't get those same advantages from a taxation sort of standpoint Correct. as you would, and you kind of want to treat your RESP as its own separate portfolio, right? Because you've got your retirement accounts on one side, you got your RESP on which is your kids on the other side. So I do want to treat those as two separate portfolios, uh, mm-hmm. and so. For that one, I just buy the BMO one, which is ZEQT, which is the 100% all equity. Obviously, do your own due research, that kind of a thing. Yeah. But just fully transparent, that's what I do. So yeah, so all three providers, I would say, are good. Just I would say 2022, be a little careful the Vanguard ones because some other fees are higher on some yeah. things. So just double check that. Don't just like blindly go into it. And obviously, you shouldn't be going blindly regardless. I do like BMO, and I'm a bit biased because they like you know they sponsor the the podcast, they sponsor the summit. But BMO, Absolutely. so so I, I want to be fully transparent about that. But I the reason I'm a fan of BMO is they are the out of the big three, they are the only like Canadian like actually Canadian company, right? Because Vanguard is mm-hmm. US, iShares is from BlackRock, which is also US. So mm-hmm. I, I do like, and that's one of the reasons I partnered with Demo too, about why I like working with them, right? Is because Same. it's like, it's a Canadian, and you do as well, right? Because it's a Canadian company, you're supporting a Canadian company directly. You know, they help you out, you help them out. You know, we're sort of that right, rising tide rises all ships kind of thing, right? So that's why Absolutely. when Demo's 100% all equity asset allocation ETF came out, that's why I decided to switch from my Van, I, I was either buying the Vanguard one or the iShares one. I switched yeah. to the BMO one uh, with any new money I put into my RESP just yeah. because I want to support these guys, right? Like it's it's a Canadian company. Cool. They're, they're awesome. Yeah. yeah. And they're great product. Oh, exactly. Exactly. Oh, if it wasn't a great product, I wouldn't be pumping my money into it, right? So, exactly. so no, for sure. Anyways, so that's kind of the shorter version, even though that was still a long answer. <laughs> long answer, but no, appreciate you sharing that. Those are some good insights. For example, breaking down those asset allocation funds just to minimize that one layer of fees and sharing, you know, the various 
the various ETFs in various accounts, whether it's the retirement accounts versus, let's say, a non-registered account. How do you do it? Different than yours. I, basically, my progression, Cornell, went from when I started, I was actually in mutual funds. So I don't know if you ever did mutual funds back in the day besides the, what do you call it, the pension plan. But just, when just I started, I, yeah. just the pension money, I went that traditional mutual funds to ETFs to stocks. So kind of that gradual progression. I did actually buy a couple stocks when I was young. So when I was 10 or 11, like, I don't know if you know this story, but I bought shares of Coca-Cola and McDonald's. Those were two stocks that my dad helped me buy. And I remember he came home with a list. Like he had literally printed out a, a watch list, I guess it was at the time. And I went through and looked at all the names that appealed to me. And there were a lot of good ones, Disney, this or that. But Coca-Cola and McDonald's were the two that I picked. And he had obviously kind of screened them for ones that may be uh, more suitable at the time. But it was more or less kind of just to get me exposed and get me into the idea that when you are buying stocks when you were in the stock market and buying shares you were literally you know becoming a part owner in a sense of a business and to get me thinking that when i go to mcdonald's when i go drink a can of coke which i don't think i was drinking too much at the time like it was more a treat you know back when i was 10 or 11 but still starting to get my brain churning in the sense that you know these are businesses these are corporations out there that are performing and growing and making money and we as investors can take our money and then kind of become a part of that and get rewarded for that so i have owned shares since i was about 10 or 11 but really, it wasn't until I got older that I decided to go the, the stock route. And it's nothing against ETFs. In fact, I advocate for the vast majority of people, like you, you should likely go with ETFs. Like you said, the data suggests that this is the most proven and reliable path for you to get there. Why take all these risks if you don't have to? For me personally, I'll just be completely honest with you, Cornell. It's not that I think that I can outperform the market and then I'm going to get so much better returns because I'm a stock picker. I just pick stocks and build a portfolio of stocks because I legitimately enjoy it. Like I legitimately, this is what I do. I have a YouTube channel. Like I said, I've been doing this for a long, long time. I find it very fun, like fun to manage a portfolio of individual stocks and do my research on whatever the company is, Disney, Walmart, again, nothing too flashy, but these big blue chip companies. And the way I construct my portfolio is very similar to yours. If I were to look at the breakdown of my portfolio, I bet you it looks very similar to kind of like the top down look at yours with the different allocations to the different areas. Basically, like, I'm not trying to be, you know, all in on tech or all in on energy and, and do well, I'm literally trying to build a diverse portfolio that for the most part, would kind of mimic the market. In fact, for example, this year, I just looked yesterday, my portfolio is down about 17% year to date, which is pretty much right in line with the S&P 500. I think S&P is down about 20%, give or take. So which is what I'd expect, right? Because I'm building my portfolio to mimic that. Nothing too too crazy above, nothing too crazy below. I kind of want to aim for that status quo medium ground just via the method of individual stocks because I enjoy it. And you mentioned the RESP there for your kids. And I've been picking your brain actually on a little bit of kid advice when I was out in uh, <laughs> Toronto because yeah, for those that don't know, I actually had my daughter this year. She's seven and a half months and I still haven't gotten around to opening up the RESP. So I will get to it. But again, that's just a flaw on my part. I know. A lot of people say, when's the RESP video coming out? When's it coming out? It will come out and we absolutely will get one going for her. But just with everything that's been going on, in all honesty, it's just been kind of pushed off, pushed down the priority list. Gotcha. And by doing individual stocks, you avoid the MER completely, right? So that's a nice advantage as well. You know, it's nice. I wouldn't say that's too huge because like you said, especially when you're starting out, the, you know, paying six basis points or 10 basis points or even, you know, 20 basis points on your money, that's a fee that's well worth it. And it's yep. not that 
noticeable. I wouldn't say that the MERs are the reason that I choose individual stocks. Like maybe like for Cornell, let's say when you get more established, you're in retirement, you have, let's say hundreds of thousands, or let's say a couple million dollars, like you sold a business or whatnot. Well, then those MERs can actually make a difference. You can say, listen, oh man, you know, these do add up to a meaningful amount every year because your, your assets are so large. But for me, I'm not at that point yet. And again, it was never, that was actually never a determining factor for me as to why I want individual stocks. I just do individual stocks because I like individual stocks. In all honesty, I do think it provides a lot of flexibility. For example, I'll give you just a quick example because I know we're going a, a while here. But um, when I purchased my home, so about a year ago now, I purchased one of my homes and I needed to withdraw some some funds for the down payments. And because I had a portfolio of individual stocks, it does provide you with a lot more options, if you will, to say, well, do I want to sell from here? Do I want to sell from here? Do I want to take this capital gain? Or do I want to take this capital loss? Versus if you are just in a broad-based index fund, and again, nothing against it, you kind of have one selection. If the market's up, if the market's down, you're peeling from one pool. And again, it's not to say that one's better than the other. It's just that for me, I've opted for that flexibility where I can then be a little more nitpicky. That's one of the the many reasons why this this is a route that tends to work for me. Mm-hmm. But that just popped in my mind. What I'm hearing, and I think this is a big part of someone's decision criteria when they think of, well, which way do they want to go is, do you actually enjoy huge. looking into the individual companies or no, right? I've, I've noticed that's such a huge difference. Right? Like in your case, yeah. you enjoy it. It's fun. It's like a hobby. You would be doing it and it's fun for you. It's not work. That's exactly right. And beyond just the enjoyment of it, also the time constraints, uh, another key one, like do you have the time yes. to be keeping up with your portfolio or not? You you mentioned in your little discussion there that you've kind of got yours as automated as possible, very simple, very seamless. You're probably just kind of very passive and hands-off, which is what so many people want because they're busy with life, because they're busy with kids or work. That's what makes sense for so many people out there. But for me, for someone who does YouTube for a living, well, my job entails looking at stocks and doing reports. So that's you kind of said it exactly right there. Yeah, no, I think that's that's key. Yeah, because in my case, if you say... Hey Cornell, the earnings came out for Company X, whatever from McDonald's, yeah, Costco, yeah, or Costco, right? And look, the earnings came out, or the you know the annual report came out, whatever the case is. When I hear that news and me having to read that or go through that and analyze that, to me that sounds like work. Like hell, <laughs> it, just, yeah. it, it doesn't sound it doesn't sound fun at all. So for me, it's why would I do this when I can just buy a total market index ETF? And then I'm done, right? And I'm nicely diversified, and everything is good. Whereas in your case, if you're I mean, I've I've worked with people like I used to work at Five Eye Research where they you know they analyze individual stocks and I mean when it's like earnings season and things. I mean like you know the people that are in those jobs, the analysts, they're excited because it's fun for them because you know this is this is just a passion of theirs and they want to be learning about these companies and how they're doing and did things go as projected and so it's just something that like I said it's a passion thing for you. Whereas with if that's not a passion, if that sounds boring to you. Then maybe maybe that's a vote for being a total market index ETF investor instead. Whereas if you enjoy kind of the fine tweaks, looking into those details, then maybe you know that's a sign that maybe you want to look into sort of Brendan's route. So I think that's a really good because it, it very much is like how are you wired? What are your interests? Does it inspire you? Does it is it fun for you or is it a chore? That's he because you're not going to stick with it if you hate it. Huge point there. Agreed. Yeah. Totally agreed. Awesome. Well, one thing I wanted to ask you is with. When you're buying the individual companies, how yeah. do you know? And I know it's a bit of a loaded question, but how do you know that you are not overpaying for that company? Because that's always been something that's really 
held me yeah. back, right? Is there's all these people that analyze stocks for a living. This is their full-time mm-hmm. job. You know, they're mm-hmm. working on Bay Street, Wall Street, whatever the case mm-hmm. is. Yeah. So the, the market is relatively efficient in, in a lot of you know scenarios. And so how do I know? Why would I know more than this person here that's been studying this? And they, you know, they're selling it to me, thinking it's overvalued, but I think it's undervalued. How do you process that? Amazing question. That's just the golden question out there. And honestly, I wish there was a great answer to you. What's funny about the stock market, at least the way I view it, Cornell, is like literally at any given point, like you said, you could have a stock or an asset that somebody thinks is overpriced and somebody thinks is underpriced. And like you said, why would he be selling it to you? And why would we be buying it? Obviously, there's various sources of research that we use, whether it's a Morningstar, whether it's this, that you can kind of dial into what these people's professional, I shouldn't say people's, but what these professionals and what these analysts view about a stock. I don't look at it like there's a fear that I'm going to be overpaying for a stock, you know, because when you're a long-term investor, and that's key, what we do is long-term investing. Like I'm investing literally for the next number of decades. And I mean that like at least three decades, 30 years out. The reality is is that nobody's ever going to get the perfect prices on stocks. You're never going to hit that perfect bottom. You're never going to find that perfect gem. Uh, There will be many cases where you underpay. There will be many cases where you overpay. I'll give you an example. A stock like Costco is a stock that I own. And in my opinion, it constantly trades at a premium. Like I believe this stock just trades more expensively than a lot of other stocks. Like Visa is another good example. Visa, Visa, the, the payment processing company. These are two companies that I own that I just think always have such high demand. There's always people wanting to buy up these stocks. If you looked at any traditional metric, like a PE ratio, you could argue that these stocks are overpriced. But they're, they are such high quality and such world-class companies that these stocks, again, if I'm to look 20 or 30 years out and my thesis is that I'm putting on these positions remain, you know, if they were to play out as I see them, I happily would buy a stock like Costco or like Visa, believing that 20 years from now, they're going to provide me with returns, let's say at the market or above the market average. Let's say I'm aiming for at least seven to 8%. And the way I, I don't view it like, oh, I'm worried that I'm going to overpay for a stock the way that you mentioned it. Because I am a long-term investor, there will be cases where I overpay. And if the stock comes down and it drops and drops and drops, I will happily actually load more money into that position, assuming it's a winner. Like I'm not saying you could do this for GameStop and AMC and these junk companies. But if you have a company like CNR, Canadian National Railway, which, yeah, maybe I overpay a little bit today, but next month stock's down 10%, 15%, market's crashing right now. If we are deploying money and lowering our average cost, the exact same principles that applies to dollar cost averaging on an index fund, you could apply that to a stock to an individual stock. And to kind of answer your question, we do the best that we can to identify stocks that are undervalued. That's obviously the goal. But you will overpay for stocks. You will overpay for a home sometimes. Like it's just an asset. And I think the difference is that when I'm looking 30 years out, I'm not trying to perfectly find the undervalued stock. And that's well, I'm going to put my money in once and it's going to make me money. I am just buying constantly. I'm literally buying on like a weekly or monthly basis. Right now, I haven't been buying as much because my capital is a little bit tied up, which is unfortunate. But you know, just putting money into the market consistently and frequently, uh, to me, that's the way to do it. And I don't know if that answered your question there, but that's how I personally view um, looking at stocks. And of course, we do aim for undervalued stocks. That's the goal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that, make, that makes a lot of sense. I, I really like your explanation there. Yeah, because it, it's, it's much more of a concern that you're overpaying if you're planning on selling it next month 
because it that's might fall. the difference Who between knows short-term and long-term. Yeah, Correct. whereas if it's longer, then okay, if the fundamentals are good, you see it grow. Yeah, that, that, that does make total sense. And then I imagine you still check though to make like if it's way out there, like when we when I think of the oh, when, way when marijuana there. was getting legalized, right? And the pot stocks went crazy and the, the valuations were just insane. And then we saw what happened. So I imagine there's still some checks and balances you guys do to say, okay, we might like this company, but the valuations are just out to lunch because the speculators have just come in in droves or whatever. So then, yeah, yeah. then we maybe don't invest in that particular we stay one. Away, we stay away from those ones. You're right. Yeah. So there's like the extremes, but in the case of like something like Costco or, or you know some of these other ones, you know, it, where it's not, where clearly it's not some like crazy, highly speculative thing like the marijuana mm-hmm. stocks were, for instance. Great example. No, that, that's a great example. And yeah, we stay away from those, uh, yeah. <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> to say the yeah. least, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So I know we had a whole bunch of other ta- things to get through, but we've been we've been on for, for quite a while, but we did cover the investment piece. So that was that was key. Because yeah, we were talking about the cash flow one for a while. And I'm like, yeah. both of our audiences are are probably even more so into the investing side. So I'm glad we got... We got that covered. Did you want to end it now, Brendan? Do you think we've got we've got good and maybe we'll do another it, session you, in the future? You tell me. It's up to you. Um, I can stick around for more. Um, if you want to do a second session and, and the viewers want to see more or the listeners, we could break it up. You tell me. I'm I'm good to go. Sounds good. Yeah, let's maybe why don't we end it now and then we can get some feedback from the listeners and the watchers to see do you guys like these kinds of episodes? I don't know about you, Brendan, but this was the first kind of collaboration episode that I've done like this. And I think it's really nice just to get the two different perspectives. I'm glad we did actually have two different perspectives on a bunch of things. Uh, so it's good. It's nice and well-rounded. But yeah, I'd love to hear you know what your audience thinks, what, what, what listeners of the podcast think. Do you like this kind of format? Do you are there certain topics you want us to dive more into to get different perspectives on? And mm-hmm. then maybe we can have a follow-up session if there's an interest and cover some of these things from the actual audience. Uh, what do you think, Brendan? I think that is the perfect idea. Why don't we leave it up to the viewers, the listeners? And like I said, we could I know Cornell, we could talk for like hours. Yeah. Like literally, and we do <laughs> when we have our conversations off camera, we go at least an hour of just chit-chatting. So what would be good is to hear the feedback. You know, if you guys are enjoying these on YouTube here, give it a thumbs up, leave comments down below in terms of like, what are the topics you'd want us to discuss? And again, Cornell, I find it so fascinating to listen to you, especially topics around like retirement, uh, passive income, like sharing your insights there on how you're kind of breaking down the different investments. Let's let the viewers and listeners provide us with the feedback. And I would be more than happy to do this again and do a part two on whatever the consensus topics are. But I hope in the meantime, people did appreciate what we talked about here on the budgeting side, cash flow, and then of course, sharing our different investments. But I'm I'm very happy to wrap it up and I hope everyone's been enjoying our, our discussion so far. Yeah, that's, that sounds great, Brendan. So maybe before we, we log off here, tell anybody that is seeing you for the first time, particularly from my audience, where can they find you? Where can they see your YouTube channel? Give us a little bit information where we can find you there. Easy. I would just say the YouTube is kind of the hub of everything we do. So yeah, we have Instagram, we have a TikTok, but those are just kind of here and there. Definitely, if you just go to YouTube or links somewhere around, search Brandon Beavis Investing. So it's just my name followed by the word investing. You will see us pop up. We're at about 185,000 subscribers. And I'd appreciate anybody that wants to come follow, wants to come learn. There is literally hundreds of videos up there talking about stuff like this and so much more. If you are looking for more info on the Canadian stock market, that would be the place to go. We do, of course, offer training. Actually, we have what's called our Investing Academy, but you can check that out at our website or through the YouTube videos. Honestly, YouTube, check it out if you like it, then you can dive deeper. But that's what I would say is the the best way to kind of find us. And vice versa, Cornell, for my audience, how do people find you? Sounds good. Yeah. So the podcast that I run is called the Build Wealth Canada Podcast. It's on all the major podcast players, you know, whether you're on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. 
yeah, so if you just search Build Wealth Canada, you'll be able to see it in your favorite podcast player. The website itself is buildwealthcanada.ca. So you can go there. All the episodes are there as well. You can sign up to the email list, lots of free resources, but pretty much 95 plus percent of the things on the site are totally free. And again, it's where I interview other top experts like Brendan to pick their brain about sort of the best practices, what's working for them so that we can all learn from them and apply what's relevant to our own portfolios and our own finances. Um, and then of course, there's the Canadian Financial Summit as well. So definitely come check that out. That's from October 12th to the 15th, 2022. But even if you're watching this and it's after that time, you can still go on there and you can put yourself on the email list and that way you'll get free tickets to the next event. So that's Canadian Financial Summit and the podcast is buildwealthcanada.ca. All right, that's all I got. Beautiful. I look forward to doing it again, Cornell. I really, this was a blast. And thank you to everybody that stuck through on the podcast or the YouTube videos. On that note of the summit, I will be doing a presentation with Mark. I would love to see you guys check it out. We will include links down below. But Cornell, I guess until next time. Awesome. That was awesome. And I'll see you at the summit. See you at the summit, Cornell. Thanks, man. Take care. Bye. All right. I hope you enjoyed the episode. A big thanks to Brendan for coming on. Him and I will both be at the Canadian Financial Summit in a few days. So definitely don't miss that. It's a fully online event and you can get your free tickets to stream all the talks for free over at buildwealthcanada.ca slash summit. That's buildwealthcanada.ca slash summit. Also, a big thanks to Indeed for sponsoring this episode. No one has a business like yours with all its strengths and challenges. This Small Business Month, you need a hiring partner that adapts to your needs. You need Indeed. With Indeed, you don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it with just Indeed. You can also find top talent fast with Indeed's suite of powerful hiring tools like Indeed Instant Match, Assessments, and Virtual Interviews. And Indeed's hiring platform helps you easily schedule and conduct virtual interviews all in one place. And if you hate waiting, according to Indeed data, candidates you invite to apply through Instant Match are three and a half times more likely to apply to your job than those who only see it in search. One thing that I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place easy because it does the hard work for you. Sponsor a job and boom, Instant Match shows you candidates whose resumes on Indeed fit your description immediately after you post. With Instant Match, you can start hiring fast. And according to Talentless 2019, Indeed delivers eight times more hires in Canada than all other job sites combined. Start hiring now with a $100 sponsored job credit to sponsor your job post at indeed.com slash build wealth. Offer is good for a limited time. Again, you can claim your $100 credit now at indeed.com slash build wealth. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Thanks for listening to the Build Wealth Canada podcast at www.buildwealthcanada.ca. 